Blog Talk Radio. Carol the Coach. Sex, love, and relationships. We talk about it here. Carol the Coach. Compassion with contemporary relevance. I am a psychotherapist. I can be your personal life coach and I can help you with your issues. There are no problems too small or too big. You can talk about anything. Speaker, columnist, radio TV host, and commentator. Carol the Coach brings messages of wellness and empowerment within reach of everyday people every day. Almost five years ago, I lost my soulmate in an accident. He was killed in a plane crash. Life just for me has seemed to stop. There are groups all over the city. I mean, I teach one. It is a specific way to start thinking so that you shift how you see the world, which then shifts your energy, and then you feel better and you actually see things differently. Carol the Coach. Always available to at carolthecoach.com. Now I've got Russell on the line. I'm 47 years old. I'm a truck driver. I'm married. I have a wife in San Francisco. Okay. I haven't been home in six months. My thing is, I I don't know if I have a sex addiction or what the problem is. Why do I want what I can't have? And as mm-hmm. soon as I can have it, I don't. I don't want it anymore. Well, who knows? I am not quite sure why that just stopped in the middle. But what I do know is that Russell was not sure why he wanted something he couldn't have. And once he got it, well, folks, he didn't want it anymore. That is an interesting topic. And that is criteria for many addicts. You know, it's not that they want the sex. They want the pursuit. They want the seduction. They want the conquest. Once they could care less about the sex. Doesn't that sound unbelievable? But it is absolutely true. Hi, I'm Carol Jurgensen Sheep, and they call me Carol the Coach, and I've been doing this show for, gosh, six-plus years, and I am here to help you to understand the addiction, help you understand the resources out there, and help you to understand and make sense of something that just seems so crazy. That's what I'm here to do. For instance, I was talking with a man today, and he shared that had not had sex for seven-plus years. It actually, the sex stopped prior to her discovering the sexual addiction. Well, we're trying to help them develop their own sexuality. And that can be very difficult once the trauma has occurred of knowing what the truth is, discovering it most of the time without the addict telling you, and figuring out what can you do to develop trust when the trust has been broken. That's in the case of somebody who's married. Now let me share with you an addict story who's not married. You know, addicts say, I cannot imagine what it would be like to be a single person trying to beat this disease. 
I would just give in. I know that if I did not have the extra incentive to make my life better because of her or him, depending on who the addict is, I don't think I can do it, Carol. I just don't think I can do it. Now, here's what I know to be true. That are in secure relationships oftentimes have their sexual relationship greatly impacted. And single addicts that don't have a relationship have to pretty much turn off their sexual drive during the first one, two, or even three years of recovery. I know that sounds insurmountable, but if you go to a 12-step group, SA, SAA, you will find that all the groups know that it is not sex that is an important driver. I know you may feel it is because you're listening to this show because you have a sex addiction. But you know what? That sex addiction is there to keep you buffered from loneliness and isolation and superficiality and emptiness. Because here's what I know to be true. If you have an addiction, if you have a sexual addiction, if you have compulsive, problematic sexual behavior, you're really looking for something to fill up the void. And I want to tell you that filling up the void means that you need to get yourself into therapy with somebody who understands sexual addiction to find out what is that wounded soul. What is that part of you that is a wounded soul? Maybe it's trauma that occurred when you were very, very young. Or maybe it's the neglect you experienced for most of your childhood. Perhaps it was a trauma that occurred when you were school-aged or in middle school or in high school. Regardless, you have to learn how to deal with that without resorting to any type of sexual addiction that ultimately medicates the pain. You see, I'm a proponent of what Dr. Carnes, Dr. Patrick Carnes, tells us about sexual addiction. And let me just just share with you what Dr. Carnes says that you need to through to get healthy. First, you need to break through your denial and understand how significant this behavior is to your sense of self and to your relationships. And when we break through the denial, we break through the defenses, the rationalizations, the justifications, the minimalizations, you will be more likely 
understand how seriousness, how serious this illness is. Okay, that's the first task. Then it is your responsibility as an addict to read recovery materials other than any 12-step literature, in addition to any kind of 12-step literature, you need to understand what is going on with you. Because when you understand it, you're more likely to be able to head it off at the pass and know what you need to do to make healthy choices. That is so, so important. Mm-hmm. Then the next thing you need to do is you need to minimize collateral damage. If you're in a family, if you have a spouse, if you're acting out in the middle of your employment, you need to figure out what behaviors will absolutely interfere, interrupt, and move you away from probability of damage in the future. Okay, can you do that? All right, then you need to surrender. That's task number four. Surrender to what it takes to get healthy. Now, you know me. I've got these 10 recovery tools, and I say you have to participate in them. You have to be part of a program. Tonight, we're going to be talking about an incredible program called the 180X Change. And Dave E. is going to be sharing with you how that program made a difference in his life. And you know I'm all about the 12-step groups, SA, Sexaholics Anonymous, SAA, Sex Addicts Anonymous, and SLAA, Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous, because they all are programs that address sexual acting out. So once you have been involved in those programs, find yourself a mentor or a guide, a sponsor, if you will, and have them join your team as Patrick Carnes calls it, a committee. So you get a sponsor or a mentor or a guide, and then you go to meetings with religiosity, a.k.a. I mean go to as many meetings as you think it takes a week to keep you sober and recovered course, you read whatever material is in that group. If you're in SAA, you read the green book. If you're in SA, you read the white book. You read your literature for that specific group, and you do the work they ask you to do, whether it's the 12 steps, or we're going to find out from Davey what 180 expects you to do. But you do that work. And then that last step of the five out of ten recovery tools is that you begin to relate to your fellowship and you call them or you text them and you 
You contact them when you need help. You contact them when you want to give them support. You create your own sense of fellowship, if you will, so that you have an entire committee to help you with this illness. Now, many people know that sex addiction is oftentimes referred to as compulsive sexual problematic behavior or problematic compulsive sexual behavior. And so if you're experiencing that, here's the next five tools. Take your life to the next level. And they are, one, go to a certified sexual addiction therapist, a CSAT. Okay? Get your rear end to that therapist who understands sexual addiction. Two, Get yourself to a therapy group that specializes in sexual addiction. Now, I know that can be hard. I mean, I'm in the Indianapolis area, and I'm the only in the state of Indiana that has a sexually addictive group therapy process for addicts. Okay, but get yourself to a group. Patrick Karn says, As a therapist, I'm not doing my job unless I provide a group for sex addicts in recovery. The third thing you want to do is read, journal, and find inspirational slash biblical materials that support you. And then I want you to pray, meditate, and journal. That's recovery tool number nine. And last but not least, what I really want you to be able to do is if you're in a relationship with somebody or if you know you need accountability tools that will assist you, you need to find people in the community who will take your covenant eyes report. If your wife needs to know where you're at, let her GPS you or have all your passcodes. You are now an open book because you are no longer going to lie. You're no longer going to keep things from her. You're going to be transparent, authentic, and honest. And sometimes we have to go to extremes. You have to kind of give everybody everything that they need. And then you know what? You can get some of that privacy back when you have proven good recovery. And again, I'm going to be talking with Dave E., and he has found found a program that has helped transform his recovery, and he's going to be talking about that tonight. So, Dave, welcome to Sex Help with Carol the Coach. I'm so excited to find out about 180X Exchange. Tell Tell me a little bit about that. Hi, Carol. It's uh, good to be with you and your listeners. Thank you. The 180 Exchange is a Christ-centered, biblical approach to helping those people who have identified what we call a hurt, a habit, or a hang-up 
and we provide an atmosphere like most of the anonymous groups where people feel safe and um, we we work them or suggest a a path of recovery that not only entails working the 12 steps that you would work with any anonymous group, but also uh, in environments where you can talk about uh, what's going on spiritually. It started about... Dave, you really, you've been through a lot of issues in your life. You knew you were combating sex addiction, and, you know, your first experience with recovery was a disaster. Can you share a little <laughs> bit with our listening audience sure. Right. How you knew it was a disaster and, and what that was like for you. Sure. Well, in, in full disclosure, I was a pastor of a local congregation in Southern California, and I went to a conference where several thousand people were in attendance, and they had a workshop on sexual addiction. And I went to it, and I immediately identified with the symptomology that was being presented. And after the conference, I spoke to the um, individual who was leading it, and he happened to be someone that was in charge of a recovery program. And um, because there was so much fear in my life at that time, and I didn't want it to go through my uh, insurance or anything like that, he said, you know, Dave, I'll go ahead and let you be outpatient and you won't you just, you know, can participate, and I did for about a month. But to be honest, Carol, I was just not in a good place, you know, not spiritually or emotionally, and I just really wasn't able to benefit. I was detached emotionally. I was in some advanced degree programs. I think I took that very sterile approach as if it were some kind of an intellectual exercise, and I really didn't connect with the other people in the program. And it just uh, it just really wasn't a good start. Although the one good thing that came out of it is that I did seek uh, a counselor, and I really got some traction. But that that uh, therapist relocated to another state, and um, I didn't follow up and get additional help. So I got stuck again. So yeah, that was my initial foray into recovery, and. Looking back, uh, there was a lot of good people around me, and unfortunately, I just could not benefit from that process. I just wasn't in a place. I wasn't willing. I wasn't willing to admit yeah. that I had a problem. I wasn't, yeah, so. Well, and you know, Dave, one of the things I was just telling our listening audience is that the very first recovery task, according to Patrick Carnes, is to break mm-hmm. through denial. and. You know, that can look like minimization or rationalization or justification. And what I heard you saying, you you used something called intellectualization, where you dealt yeah. with your life with intellectual concepts. You were in all sorts of programming and education that helped you to right. feel better, but it wasn't getting to the core of the problem. Absolutely not, Yeah. Well, you know, that was part of my mantra. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I'd finish one degree program and get into another, and then another, and another. 
And um, after each of those, I thought, well, the next one, the next one, the next one, that'll help me. Yeah. And it didn't because, again, you had not been able to um, find something that absolutely resonated with your mind, body, and spirit until you found 180. So now continue. Tell us what else you did as you were this intellectual observer instead of a willing participant. (laughs) Right. Working with your brokenness. Yeah. Well, you know, I I tell people all the time in recovery that I make choices and they they have consequences, but I tell people God or my higher power gets to choose those consequences. And you know, it wasn't until about 20, year later, 20 years later that uh, my consequences were severe enough that I, I was arrested. I lost my job. I lost my career. Um, it was a low enough a bottom that I was sick and tired of being sick and tired, and I was ready. And uh, unfortunately, um, for some of us who have addictive personalities or, or suffer from, in, in my case, sexual addiction, it takes one of those very severe occurrences to break through, like you said, the denial, because I had mastered compartmentalization and justification and minimization. I had mastered all those psychologically. But when I was faced with the consequences of being unemployed and not having any prospects and being... Um, for the first time at almost age 50, uh, being very much isolated and alone and with very few external props to, uh, you know, prop my sense of self and my false self up, I just completely, you know, hit rock bottom. And it was for the first time that I verbalized that I needed help. And conversely, you know, I, I think back that um, because we know that addiction is a family disease, my son was struggling. I have three children. My, my middle child was, was struggling um, his senior year in high school. And uh, he very quickly, in a, about a two- or three-month period of time, went from abuse, use, abuse, to dependency on drugs. And we got him in uh, assessed and then inpatient at Fairbanks, and then he was uh, dual diagnosed with with not only the addiction but the root cause was schizophrenia. And uh, my son, you know, we supported him. My wife, my two daughters, we supported him, and we went through parent support. We went through family counseling, and was, that was the time that I said, you know, I came to Fairbanks and recovery because my son but I'm staying in recovery because of me. And that was the first time that I made that mental switch. I need to seek help for me. And can I ask you, Dave, are you wanting to keep private why you were arrested? Because, I mean, that is certainly every sex addict's greatest fear, that they will be arrested and exposed to the world about their sex addiction. Uh, no, um, I was uh, charged with a Class C sexual misconduct with a minor 
and I meandered through the legal system for about three years. This was about 13, 14 years ago. And um, at the time that my son was being diagnosed with uh, schizophrenia, uh, a plea agreement that had been arranged, uh, the judge threw it out. And um, I basically said, I'm done. You know, you fight, you think you have your best intentions in mind. And I, I just said, okay, I'm done. And I accepted whatever uh, my lawyer and the prosecutor uh, at that point had worked out. And originally, it wasn't going to require me to be registered as a sex offender. Uh, I didn't have to do any prison time. But uh, no, it, it definitely was a part of uh, one of the most painful periods, not only my life, but my family's life. And um, I'm not ashamed of that. I'm not uh, hiding or running from that. In fact, I've been, I think, redeemed from that, and uh, I've come full circle. So I had some court-appointed counseling that I had to do, and that put me in contact with the kind of programs that, that you're familiar with. And then I began to do my own subsequent um, seeking and searching of those support groups that were out there, and I've attended many of them because at least in my case, I don't have just a single addiction. <laughs> uh, my addiction has manifested uh -huh. itself in o overeating or drinking or other behaviors. But the one that got me into recovery was my sexual addiction. And so because I'm so familiar with the church world and I had been a part of um, uh, early on, I've been introduced to some recovery programs like Celebrate Recovery and exchange, which at the time was being held at Grace Church, I just dove in. And um, it was a really good decision. I was encouraged by my first sponsor to try to do 90 meetings in 90 days, and I was doing SAA or SA or um, AA or OA. I was doing different programs just so I could get my meetings in, but uh, it was a very important time in my uh, development. Well, you know, so I guess that answers, that answers your that. question. I'm not keeping it. Yes. No, no, I absolutely understand. And it sounds like you had this pivotal moment when you hit rock bottom and you said, okay, I'm going to surrender to the process. And, and that, again, is something that Patrick Carnes talks about doing. He says, you know, first you have to break denial. Then you have to understand what sex addiction is. Then you have to limit collateral damage and surrender to the process. And what I hear you saying is you surrendered. You looked at all sorts of programs, and you found some that fit your needs. So tell us a little bit yeah. more about 180X. So the 180, um, so just prior to my finding the 180 exchange, I went through a spiritual event called Lamplighter. It's very common in churches here in the Midwest. It goes by different names. Vida de Cristo, the Emmaus Walk, the Great Banquet. The weekend I went through was called Lamplighter. And at that Lamplighter event, um, I was on a, I was in a, uh, around a table with about five or six other gentlemen. It was the first time that I publicly was talking about my sexual addiction and some of the ways it was manifesting itself and some of the 
legal issues or consequences that I had. And I felt for the very first time, interestingly enough, and speaking as a clergyman, you know, I felt forgiveness. I felt love and acceptance. And that same church, Grace, had just started a program called 180X, and I began immediately attending it. And so um, 60 to 80 folk at that time were meeting, and um, there was a, a large group teaching time, and then there was a time for individuals to break into breakout groups along the lines of the specific areas where they were seeking help. And I just started becoming comfortable in my own skin. I began to uh, share openly and deeply about what I was discovering about my sexual addiction, not only from attending um, 12-step groups, the anonymous groups, but also insights I was getting from counseling and also as I was getting reconnected uh, to a more authentic life-giving form of spirituality. So because I was familiar with the church, I felt comfortable in the church, and I enjoyed that kind of an atmosphere, it was an easy transition for me personally. So the 180 okay. Exchange is a program. It's a, it's a program. Now it meets on, on Sunday evenings at East 91st Christian Church from 5 to 7. Um, and um, I, I'm one of the not only leaders of it, but I'm a minister who's available along with a couple other individuals that people need to go deeper spiritually into some of their issues. But I, I co-lead the sexual integrity group. And sometimes there's some spillover with individuals, uh, men who want to be a part of our group, our breakout group or our um, integrity group that might be struggling with other areas. And we just do life together. And it follows the very closely the format of some of the anonymous groups in terms of anonymity and no crosstalk, uh, the kinds of things that we share. We use I statements. We focus on our recovery. And um, because I have you know, more than 10 years of sobriety now for my sexual addiction, I, I like or enjoy leading uh, that because I'm willing to share anything about my experiences with the desire that anyone that would attend that group would feel free to receive those experiences and have hope. I know how much I wanted and needed hope in my early recovery days. And so I, I think these groups are a godsend for sure. Yeah, it's almost like you were so sick and tired of being sick and tired. And mm-hmm. you really had had a fairly high-profile denominational job. And so mm-hmm. you made the decision that you were going to get help and you were going to start dealing with exactly what was in front of you. And you surrendered to it and you acknowledged, you know, one of the things when I read your story, I said, this is a man who really has been excellent at at holding himself accountable, not in a bad way, but to say, you're right. Mm -hmm. These are all the things that I did that contributed to my demise and also to Mm -hmm. some of the issues in my family. So tell us a little bit about what resources that you utilize with the inclusion of 180 Exchange that help to make your life different. Yeah, so I I moved away from 
some of the distorted thinking, you know, um, once you start getting some sobriety, your head clears and you're able to do some uh, important thinking and um, you get to have better judgment. And so I early on decided that I wanted to continue some of the spiritual practices that had at one time been a pretty important part of my my life. And I, I reached out to um, the religious community and started doing regular retreats. And that was a, a very beneficial uh, aspect of my journey. Um, in fact, something that I did with another gentleman in the program. So it not only deepened my friendship and relationship with that individual, but together we were uh, um, dedicating time to spiritual work, you know, uh, prayer and meditation, um, things that were associated with a, uh, a monastery uh, about two or three hours from here called St. Meinrad's. And uh, I also um, did retreats um, in, other, in other areas, in other states, uh, with different individuals. Uh, Thomas Keating, who passed away this past October, um, was a very important uh, spiritual mentor through his uh, writings, not only on centering prayer, but on divine therapy. Um, Richard Bohr was another author that I picked up and uh, was introduced to. And, and so because I have this um, bent towards research and study, it was an easy way for me to just keep my mind engaged, but at the same time, introduce some spiritual practices that, um, that really centered me and um, settled me. So from being hyperactive and very activistic, I started getting in touch with a different part of my, uh, my spirituality, which was a capacity that I did not know I had, which was to be able to um, go into long periods of silence in prayer and meditation. So, yeah, those are some of the other things uh, that, um, and also, you know, to be honest, I was fortunate enough to uh, have met some individuals that I connected with, and some of them were counselors or spiritual directors, and I just began to, you know, surround myself with the right voices and uh, the right relationships. And so clearly, you made a decision to do a variety of things. You sought out and found a program that worked for you. And then you also did the internal work of introspection, meditation, prayer. Um, Mm -hmm. I even suspect that you probably journaled so that you would have a better understanding of where you stood. And then you got involved with the Enneagram, right? Yes, I did. Yeah, well, so, you know, early, a little bit about the Enneagram. Well, the Enneagram has, um, it's a profile for looking at human nature. And for me, the, the, the significant takeaway of the Enneagram 
is that it helps me see my human condition. And so when I'm connected to my authentic self and things are going well, I'm a three, which is a, a producer, a high achiever, in some cases an overachiever. But what happens when uh, I lose sight of the spiritual aspects of who I am? How does that manifest itself? What happens when my gift or my personality goes dark? And for me, the three dark side is deceit. And so the Enneagram gave me the first very uh, deep look at not only my strengths, but my strengths turned on in themselves and how when they go dark, they can be very, very destructive. And so the, the um, antidote for the three is authenticity and transparency. That's why I would be willing to come on a program like yours, and that's why I'm willing to have a public profile. Because not only were my sins or my addiction uh, public and the negative aspects of it, but I'm also choosing to allow uh, my recovery to be public and on display. And so authenticity and transparency. One of my favorite authors is Don Allen, Dan Allender, and he calls this leading with a limp. It's uh, the willingness to let people be exposed to our own brokenness so that it will provide others with experience, strength, and hope. And so I'm willing to share uh, on that deep level. And I think that's what really transforms programs like yours, programs like the one that I'm talking about tonight, are just tools that can be used to help individuals become comfortable in their own skin to be able to identify what their part is in the addiction, whether they've been victimized originally or um, have had, you know, something perpetrated upon them. But at some aspect of the pilgrimage, uh, each of us has to own and keep our side of the street clean. And um, so that's what I do. I acknowledge my character defects. I try to keep my relationships current. And if I need to, I can make an immediate amends, immediate amends if I'm too harsh in my judgment or if my words haven't been kind. It's just, a, it's just a way of learning to live life on life's terms that really produces the greatest amount of true friendship and intimacy. And, and this is why I enjoy, and I feel like it's a part of my Davidness, and that's something that I think I could share. Maybe you can ask me a question about that, but yeah, definitely the discovery of my Davidness also is connected to the Enneagram, which is basically when I'm in my Davidness, in God's love, connected to reality, God's ways in me become easy and light. And it's the difference between living life as if you have to force everything to happen or if it just comes to you in the flow of life. Like for me, I experience a lot of life as a gift. And I like that attitude, and I like to have and express thanksgiving to the people around me and to the gifts uh, that come my way. So, yeah. Well, absolutely. And so one more time, will you describe that again? 
because I clearly heard you say that you really believe that your journey is about being authentic, transparent, Mm -hmm. and honest Mm -hmm. with yourself and with others. So Mm -hmm. one more time, explain to our listening audience what transpired that made you have, if you will, an awakening. One of the first things that I early on discovered is that I had distorted images of God. And for me, the one word definition of spirituality is what you just said, awakening, that I have an awareness. I begin to see things like I've never seen them before. And so I began to look at scripture and I began to understand that the center of Jesus' teachings had to do a great deal with not the act, but the motivation behind the act. And I began to discover some of those motivations. That's where the problem was located. For me, it was, sure, I have some fruit issues. There's these things that are going on, and I'm producing fruit externally. But the reality is, it's the root system that needed to be changed. And for, for me, early on, I heard a, a psychologist at uh, Louisville Baptist um, Hospital who also had some experience personally with addiction, and he said for himself that the first thing that leaves an addict in their life is their spirituality, and the last thing to return in recovery is a healthy spirituality. And that, for me, was a major turning point as I began to realize that I, the same spirituality that I utilized in my addiction was not going to be the same spirituality that was going to lead me in recovery. And so that led me to tools like the Enneagram. It led me to the individuals that I've already mentioned. And it also led Mm -hmm. me to a more healthy approach. And so, yeah, like you said, um, I was journaling. I was taking note of feelings and emotions, doing that that emotional work. And I was getting connected to life-giving ways. And you know, what I really like is that you have figured it out based on how it feels for you. I mean, everybody's journey is different, and that's the beautiful thing about recovery. But clearly, you have no doubt that what you experienced, what your insight was, came from exactly the place that you needed to be aware of to gain better recovery. I mean, it's not just recovery into addiction abstinence. It's about a transformation, your, your davidness, if you will. Right. You know, thanks for mentioning that again, because I wanted to go back to my davidness. So there was an individual in my life, uh, a counselor, uh, George Donaldson, and um, he passed away last year, uh, two years ago, sorry. And um, George was an individual that I met in a Bible study, and we immediately hit it off. And then from that time, until his death over a three-year period, 
we spent on average about two hours a week in conversations, um, either over coffee or maybe a sandwich for breakfast at McDonald's, but we had our time and we had our location and we would just, uh, just, just talk. And George would ask me penetrating questions and challenge some of my assumptions. And um, I've mentioned to people publicly that he was the individual who spoke more truth into my life than any other human being as, uh, as an adult. And uh, George was, was a gift to me. And I think conversely, um, because I was a researcher and I read extensively, I was able to share some books with him that helped him figure out some stuff, I think, in his life and, and um, in his uh, not only personal, but his professional life. So it was a symbiotic relationship. I really wasn't a patient of his as it was, but um, I'm sure that I was under his tutelage and uh, he definitely poured into me and uh, I'm, a, I'm very grateful. Uh, and I think that I'm not unique in that regard. I think the listeners that are hearing uh, our conversation today, if they have their eyes open, there are people around them that are situated to do for them what George did for me and what you're doing for me, yourself. And I think that's part of the uh, positive view I have of God and how God uh, responds to those who cry out for help. Well, you know, absolutely. And again, one of the things I know about you, Dave, because you are a leader in our community, and yet, you know, you mm-hmm. keep mentioning like Grace Church, which is in Indianapolis, and that is wonderful for our listeners that are here in the Midwest mm-hmm. and especially in the Indianapolis mm-hmm. area. And yet, sure. 180 Exchange is all over the world, is it not? Um, no. It, um, there are ministries, for example, like uh, Celebrate Recovery, which was developed uh-huh. out of Saddleback Church in Southern California, and, and CR, Celebrate Recovery, is. Um, it has a wide audience in different language groups in different countries. Um, to be honest, 18 Exchange... Uh, we are mainly here in central uh, central Indiana, not only in some urban context, but in some of the um, more suburban situated churches. And we've just recently, because um, I, I, I do real estate full time, um, I own my own real estate company, but I'm basically like the Apostle Paul, a tent maker. And so my real estate um, activity funds or allows me to be basically full-time in ministry as a pastor of recovery. And I'm involved with, with various churches. Um, yeah, maybe at some point 180 uh, would be or have a wider audience. But I know that there are many programs like this, like Celebrate Recovery and uh, other programs like it that are out there. And there's a favorite scripture of mine that, those who ask receive, those who seek find, those that knock, the door will be open. And wherever your uh, listeners are located, I'm sure that they're in a community where they can find help, uh, not only with the anonymous groups, but in their, um, in churches or synagogues or 
uh, places of worship. Um, these programs are becoming uh, very common and in the age of the opioid epidemic in our country has opened the eyes of, of uh, a lot of individuals. And churches are ideally situated or suited, I think, to be uh, beacons of hope and lights in the community. And so it's not uncommon for many of the anonymous groups to be housed in churches. And then also these same churches and other churches are, are running or operating uh, programs. So yeah, it's not a worldwide ministry at this point, but certainly uh, many, many, uh, you know, Roman Catholic or Christian or evangelical or almost any faith community will have uh, programs in the community for people who are struggling with what I call hurt habit or hang up or addictions. Got it. Now, let me just ask you, Dave, because you really do seem to have a full understanding of what it took for you to deal with your Mm -hmm. openness, your brokenness, and your humility. Um, What are some of the early principles or lessons that you learned as you started your journey in recovery? I I think that's so important for our listening audience who may be wondering, wow, how did he get there? Well, pain, (laughs) pain is a great motivator. And um, I remember reading uh, one of Richard Rohr's books, Father Richard Rohr, and he says, don't pray for God to remove the pain until you've learned the lesson for which the pain is there. And so me, I was able to acknowledge my pain on so many levels, not only the external pain of um, all the losses that were taking place in my life, a home, a job, a career. Um, But um, learning that that pain was there because my methods were not working. And so early on, I began to understand something. And sometimes I oversimplify, but it helps me to, to be able to keep them fresh in my mind. And I remembered a teaching in scripture that said that those that will enter the kingdom of God, speaking of Jesus, speaking of his arrival, said that you have to enter it like a child. And I associated that with being humble and teachable. So for me, when people approach me to be involved in their spiritual journey, if I don't see those two characteristics, I usually uh, choose not to you know, have some kind of official relationship. Just like I wasn't ready in the 1990s because I wasn't humble or teachable, uh, until a person is ready, um, these, these um, relationships don't gain much traction. And so humility and teachability, I think, are two of the signs that I look for in myself, even today, and I look... Uh, in others as they approach me. So humility and teachability are just instrumental. Yeah, I love those principles. And that's certainly something that many of our sex addicts who are looking for a better sense of recovery can can look for in their own lives and kind of assess. I mean, it's not like I want them to do your journey, but... You know, so many of the addicts I work with, 
this is such uh, this is a tough situation, and they do want as much guidance as they can get. Would you agree? I would definitely agree. You know, I didn't mention one person that I know that you're going to really enjoy me saying this. Um, it's been at least 10 years, but I, I became a very big fan of Brene Brown. And I was introduced mm-hmm. to her, her, her uh, gifts of imperfection and that some of her research on shame. When I went to my first SAA meeting or my first recovery meeting, I had an immediate and strong visceral connection to the people in that room and to that experience. And I left there saying for the first time ever, I'm home. I found a home. And Brene's books Mm -hmm. um, helped me connect myself to the brokenness as it's manifested itself in my life coming from a family of origin where there's five generations of sexual abuse and, and the performance based uh, ways that I developed living life. So when I wanted to receive external praise from people in my family of origin, I had to do it by some form of achievement whether it was achievement in sports or achievement with grades. And when you read people like Brene Brown, you realize that uh, some of these profound psychological ways in which we learn to navigate life work for a while, but then when they stop working, they stop working and life stops working. And uh, my methods were not working and I was becoming more and more desperate. And so to be able to talk about shame the difference between shame and guilt. Guilt means I've done bad. Shame means I am bad. And I felt shame as one of the first emotions, even in my infancy, some of my strongest, most um, cognizant memory that I have is of shame. And along with that was fear. So I lived within a cloud of shame and fear. And so Brene Brown became a... um, a, um, an important voice that allowed me to navigate some of those earliest of my human experiences and then to be able to go back in there and allow God's grace to uh, reframe those experiences by not moving in closer, but by panning out farther and realizing that there were people in my life that were positive influences and doing their best in their own brokenness, but uh, reframe them so that they weren't as shaming or as fearful and they weren't as formative. I was able to grow in them and through them to become a um, integrated person, which doesn't mean I pretend that the past doesn't exist and that those things didn't happen, but I can create a a cohesive narrative where I can incorporate the good, the bad, and the ugly. And so Brene was an incredible, incredible gift to me. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I can't can't thank God enough for 
her writing and her uh, her TED talk, just to say just to say a couple of things about her. Oh, absolutely agree with you. It is amazing the work she has done, the fact that she has compiled research to substantiate that work. Uh, she is a mm-hmm. gift to all of us, mm-hmm. professionals, addicts. Um, and just yeah. anyone who wants to better themselves by learning vulnerability and true authenticity, mm-hmm. because that's what she says on technicity. Authenticity yeah. is. It is vulnerability, being honest, open, and transparent. Yeah, that's exactly right. All right, so we have to end, but is there anything else you would like to share in 60 seconds or less? with our listening audience? Um, You're not alone. You're listening and there is hope. Um, Things might seem dark. You may be in a lot of pain. Pain can be your friend. Pain can provide answers. And uh, have courage to take the, the next step to seek help, to seek true relationships. And um, I believe in a higher power, the God of the Bible, uh, and I believe mm-hmm. that God will respond to anyone who cries out. And um, we are never, never alone. And, um, yes, uh, if I can be of any help in any way, uh, you have my contact information, and people can go to our website. And um, I love having conversations. That uh, And I do this on a daily on a daily basis, and uh, I think we can figure it out together. Seconds. Hey, Dave, yep. give them we your can, website. We've got 15 seconds. Uh, it's um, so HTTPS semicolon two forward slashes 180X and then change.org. Dave, thank you so much for your work. You have always been so diligent in helping other addicts. God bless you, and we will talk soon. Thanks, Carol. Enjoyed it very much. Look forward to seeing you soon. All right. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was Dave E., and he is a proponent of 180 Exchange. We'll talk to you next week for more Carol. Sex Help with Carol the Coach.